Welcome to River Fellowship Podcast. At River Fellowship, we strive to experience God, exalt Christ, embrace community, and engage the world. This week, Lead Pastor Daryl Anderson continues the series Elevate with Part 3, Elevate Jesus. In today's world, many opinions exist regarding Jesus. In this teaching, we see two reasons and two places to elevate Jesus. To learn more about River Fellowship in Amarillo, Texas, go to rfamarillo.org. We are in the middle of um, our series entitled Elevate. The last two weeks, we've talked about elevating God both for who he is, but also for what he is not. And with both of those, it gives us cause to to elevate God. This morning, I want to talk about the topic of elevating Jesus. We're going to talk about Jesus this morning, which is a pretty good topic for church. I'm sure you all remember that, you know, that old story where you're a kid growing up or maybe even a teenager, your, your Sunday school teacher, your life group teacher asks you a question, you don't know the answer. But you're in church, so the answer is Jesus, right? So it doesn't matter what the question is, just answer. If you don't know what it is, just answer Jesus, because Jesus is always the right answer in church. Well, that's kind of where we are today. We're just going to talk about Jesus. We're going to elevate Jesus this morning. And we could look at a variety of passages, but I've chosen to hone in on Hebrews. Uh, And the reason is the writer of Hebrews, most people think it's Paul, um, originally wrote to a church either in Rome or Jerusalem. And they say that he was writing primarily to Jews. Some say just Jews in general. Others say maybe specific groups of Jews, maybe priests or maybe Jewish believers. But because he's writing to Jews, he takes great time and effort to explain and detail the uniqueness of Jesus and the superiority of Jesus. So, That's what we see here in Hebrews. And the reason he does that is because at that time, there were significant groups of people that did not believe in the uniqueness of Jesus or the superiority of Jesus. For example, there were non-believing Jews who were monotheistic, and their mantra was, the Lord our God is one. And so for Jesus to claim to be God to them was heretical and blasphemous. At the same time, they were in a Greek-Roman culture that was polytheistic, and they worshiped just a plethora of gods. Some of them might include Jesus as one of those gods, but he's not unique. He's just in a pile of a bunch of others. But others wouldn't even recognize Jesus as one of the gods, as one of the Greek or Roman gods. So it's in that context that he comes and he explains all of this. Now, what's interesting to me is our world today is not that much different especially in our post-Christian era that we now live in. We may not see it as much because we're still kind of stuck in a Bible belt, but when you look at the world uh, in general, we are past this Christian dynamic, so it's a a post-Christian world, and the same dynamic is true. There are uh, religious cults and groups that do not believe in the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. He's maybe a teacher, maybe a prophet, but maybe he's just kind of like us. There are agnostics and atheists that either question Jesus as God or they would say God doesn't even exist so there's no way Jesus could be God because there is no such thing as God. There are other groups that might say Jesus is maybe a way to God, but he's not the way. There's nothing really unique about him. He's one of a plethora of other ways. So the dynamic is real similar to what it was here in Paul. So that's why we're going to look at Hebrews. So it's in this context that I want to walk through Talk about the uniqueness of Jesus, the superiority of Jesus. Hopefully that leads us to elevate Jesus. 
So let me invite you to look at Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to start kind of in the middle and go backwards and talk about who Jesus is superior to, and then we'll get more specific about his uniqueness. In Hebrews 7, verse 24, we see that the writer says that Jesus is superior to the high priest. Remember, he's speaking to Jews, first off. It says, because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. And like the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the son who has been made perfect forever. Here we see within Judaism, the high priest was, was held the highest regard, the highest position in Judaism. Even the other priest held the high priest in high regard. But the high priest of Judaism was a, a temporary position because he would die. And obviously once he's dead, he's no longer the high priest. And he would offer sacrifices, blameless, without defect, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. But he points out that Jesus is so different and unique and superior because he did not provide the sacrifice. He was the sacrifice. He was the blameless sacrifice. And he's an eternal priest because he will never die. He is eternal. So he has an eternal priesthood. So he offered himself for mankind. Now go back, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 3. In verse 1, we see now that Jesus is superior to Moses. Says, therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house. Verse 6, but Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. Again, for Jews, for many Jews, Moses was held as the highest prophet of all the prophets. Because while the other prophets might have dreams and visions and, and would speak for God, Moses encountered God face to face. He had personal contact and connection with God. They also, some would consider Moses as the Savior because he's the one that rescued the children of Israel from bondage in Egypt. Some felt like Moses was the provider through all the miracles that went through in the Exodus. Some people considered Moses as the ultimate interceder when he interceded on behalf of the children of Israel and God was just going to wipe them out because of, of their idolatry. So Moses was held in high regard to the Jews of that day. So the writer says, Moses is a great godly man, but Jesus is superior to Moses and worthy of greater honor. Why? Because Moses was faithful as a servant, but Jesus was the faithful son of God. Now back up, if you will, to Hebrews chapter one, and he gives us one more category of people here in verse four and says that Jesus is superior to the angels. Says he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. 
And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Again, for many Jews in that day, uh, angels were highly esteemed uh, because they were messengers of God. Uh, some feared the angels because of the power and the, the presence of God. According to Colossians 2.18, there were Jews that even worshipped angels in that day. So the writer comes and says, the angels, again, are great messengers of God, but Jesus is superior to the angels. Why? Well, we can't, don't have time to elaborate this morning all through Scripture, but let me give you a succinct comparison of the difference of why he says Jesus is greater than the angels. Angels were created. Jesus is the creator. Angels take human form, but Jesus became man. Angels have power, but Jesus is omnipotent. The angels have a word from God, but Jesus is the word of God. The angels glorify God, but Jesus is the glory of God. Angels are God's servant, but Jesus is God's son. And when it comes to, to angels, there are many, but when it comes to the king of kings and the son of God, there's only one. And angels were sent to minister to man, but Jesus came to redeem man. So he says, because of that, we elevate Jesus because he is unique and he is superior to the angels, to Moses, and to the high priest. So it brings us back to the original question. Why elevate Jesus? Well, there's a short, easy answer. Because Jesus is God. So everything we've talked about God the last two weeks, we could say the same thing about Jesus. Because Jesus is God. That's the sermon. We're done. Let's pray. No. You know, I'm not just going to stop at a short answer. What he does in Hebrews, now at the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 1, he gives us some great descriptions about Jesus and what makes him so unique, what makes him so superior, and gives us reason of why we should elevate him. Verse 1, in the past... God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty heaven. Let me give you six descriptions that the writer gives us of why we should elevate Jesus. What makes him so unique and so superior? They're all linked together. They all kind of form a unit. But the first description is verse two. He's the heir of all things. Psalm 2.8 says, I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. The reality is that Jesus is already the heir. Heir simply means the one who inherits, the one who possesses. And he already inherits and possesses everything. He's the heir of all things. But the second is connected to it. In verse 2, he says he's also the creator of all things. Jews understood God as creator. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens. So this is a bold statement now to say Jesus created all things. John 1, 1 through 3 says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning and through Him all things were made. 
Without him, nothing was made that has been made. We know he's talking about Jesus because later it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Colossians 1.16 says, for by him, Jesus, all things were created and all things were created by him and for him. And here's a Here's a, a wonderful mystery. Here's a great concept where these are linked together. It says that Jesus created everything. Everything was created by him and for him. So he is both the creator and the heir. Everything he created, he created for himself. <laughs> so this great, great news for us because Romans 8:17 says we are co-heirs with Christ. Christ did not create everything for us. <laughs> he created everything for himself. We just get to hitch the ride. We just get to enjoy all the benefits. Everything that he created for himself, we get to enjoy as a part of the inheritance of being in Christ. He is the heir of all things. He's the creator of all things. And then in verse three, it says that he's the sustainer of all things. Colossians 1.17 says, in him, all things hold together. This too is great news for us. Because if God's the sustainer of all things, then he's the sustainer of your things too. And if he's the sustainer of the entire universe, he can sustain your world. And if he can keep everything in place, these hundreds of billions of galaxies that we talked about last week, these hundreds of billions of galaxies that he keeps sustained and in place, if he can do all of that, he can sustain everything in your world. Whatever's going on, whatever enters your world, whatever impacts your world, he can sustain you because he's the sustainer of all things. So we see here linked together, he's the heir of all things, he's the creator of all things, and he's the sustainer of all things. Then he gives us two other descriptions that link together as well. In verse three, he calls Jesus the radiance of God's glory. Radiance here means brilliance. And splendor means, uh, excuse me, glory means splendor. It's like the light radiating from God's glory. And for the Jews, especially that he's writing to, they equated God's glory with God's presence. So anytime they're talking about God's glory, they're talking about God's presence because wherever God is present, his glory is manifest. Whether it's the burning bush with Moses, whether it's the cloud and the fire in the Exodus, whether it's the cloud or the tent of meeting when, when, when Moses would go meet with, with God, wherever God's presence was, that was God's glory. So for the writer to say that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, what he's saying is Jesus is the glory of God. Jesus is the glory of the presence of God. Jesus is the presence of God. It's another way simply to state that he, in essence, is God. Now, he says it another way and reinforces that concept. He calls him the exact representation of God. The exact representation of God. In other words, Jesus is not similar to God. Jesus doesn't resemble God. Jesus doesn't bear the likeness of God. God doesn't simply live in him like he lives in us. Jesus is God. 
He's the exact representation. Uh, This is old school. I I couldn't find one. It's so old school, I couldn't even find one. So some of you guys will have no idea what I'm even talking about. That's okay. But back in the day, okay, I'm sounding like really old now. You know, back in the day, back in the day, there was this uh, kind of a stamp. It's kind of like, almost like pliers or a clamp or a vice deal that notaries would use, other official would use it um, when they had to sign a document. So if you take this paper, they'd have this little deal, it has a stamp, and engraved on that stamp was all their information, okay? So when you would stick this under a piece of paper, you would clamp it and you would squeeze it, and when you you released it, on that paper is this mark. That mark rose up, and it's the exact representation of the stamp. It's the exact same thing. This word, exact representation, literally means to bear the stamp of. In other words, they are exactly the same. Now, speaking in, in, with living organism, biologically, um, I have no idea really what I'm talking about. Okay, this is, this is just layman's stuff, so some of you medical science people will probably laugh at me. But as I was doing some of this research, with living organism, there is uh, genotype, which is the internal coding of inheritable information. It's the internal coding, the makeup of our genes, the, uh, our DNA, okay? There's genotype. But then there's phenotype. And phenotype is the external manifestations of that internal coding, Okay? With identical twins, what's very interesting is identical twins have the same genotype, the same exact DNA, but they do not have the same phenotype. The physical characteristics can change. For example, their fingerprints are different, and there are other physical manifestations that can be different. So they're the same in essence, but their physical manifestation is different. As I thought about that, it's really a great representation of what we're talking about here, that Jesus is the exact representation of God. That's hard for us to understand sometimes because Jesus was a man. So how do we compute that with God? Because God is not a man. God is spirit. This is a good way to understand it. Let me say it this way. This isn't a biblical concept. This is, I'm trying to say it in words we can get. It's as if God and Jesus have the same genotype. They are in essence the same, but not the same phenotype. Because Jesus, somehow, God's able to become man. And as Jesus Christ on earth incarnate, he is 100% God and 100% man. He's able to manifest himself as us, as man. So God is not in the human man form The phenotype's different, but what this is saying is Jesus and God, in essence, they're exactly the same. Jesus is God. It was just another way for the writer to say, Jesus is God. He gives one more description. Verse three, he says that Jesus is the provider of the purification of sin. In other words, Jesus' death accomplished full cleansing from every act of sin against God and from the very 
condition of sin in our heart and in our life. Hebrews 9.15, he says, Christ died as a ransom to set us free from our sins. Verse 26, he continues and says, Christ did away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus is unique and superior because he is the only provider of the purification of sin. He's not a provider. He's the only one. That's why Jesus could say, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I am the gate. There's no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. He tags that on with, I am the Father or one. <laughs> if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What he's saying is, I am God. I am the sacrifice for sin. I am the only means to have your sins forgiven. That's why we elevate him. Because he's unique in salvation. So you tie all these together. You tie all six of these descriptions together. That gives us the reason why we elevate Jesus. So we go back to that original question, why elevate Jesus? It's because he's unique. It's because he's superior. The short answer is because he is God. Now, that's the theological answer, okay? Everything we've talked about is theological answer, theological concept. But there's another reason why we should elevate Jesus, and it's the practical reason, and that's because of what happens when we elevate him. John 12, 32, Jesus says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. Now, he's talking specifically about his death. He's talking specifically about how he will die on the cross. But as you combine that with other statements in Scripture, we see a concept that runs all through Scripture, and that is when we lift up Jesus Christ, when we elevate Jesus Christ, he draws all people unto himself. We are not responsible for bringing people to Jesus. We are not responsible for drawing people to Jesus. We are responsible for elevating Jesus, and he will draw people unto himself. If we will glorify him, if we will honor him, if we will live for him, if we will do what God's called us to do and elevate Jesus, he will draw those people through his spirit and through his work into relationship. Now, he may use us as instruments to help in the process, but he's going to draw them unto himself, and we get to be a part of that process. So obviously, we elevate Jesus in the church. We should elevate Jesus in the church. That's why our mission statement, our vision statement has four tenets and one of them is exalt Christ. We should be elevating Jesus Christ. But we should also be elevating Jesus in the world. I said earlier, kind of just as that joke of in the church, the answer is always Jesus. If you don't know the answer, just yell out Jesus is the answer. In the church, Jesus seems to be the answer, but in the world... Jesus never seems to be the answer. Inside the church, Jesus is given high regard, but in the world, he's given little or no regard in many circles. If you mention the name of Jesus inside the church, everybody shouts hallelujah. But if you mention the name of Jesus in the world, you may be reprimanded or ridiculed. So it's a lot easier 
to elevate Jesus when we're in the church. It's a lot harder to elevate Jesus in the world. But it's in the world that we need to take Jesus and elevate Jesus because if we're not elevating Jesus in the world, we're missing the point altogether. This week in preparation, as I was studying and just kind of praying and thinking through the message, I've had an uneasiness and a discomfort the entire week of a, about this message. And I never really could figure it out as to why, what the, what the deal was. Yesterday, it kind of hit me. I don't want this message to be a theological study about Jesus Christ. <laughs> we don't need another Bible study about who Jesus is. If all this is this morning is a theological look at the superiority of Jesus and we leave saying, man, that's cool. If that's it, I have failed and this has been a waste. This needs to be a catalyst that takes us into the world that when we're in our world and in our neighborhood and in our family and in our work environment, that we are elevating Jesus in the world and not keeping him in the church. It's a lot harder to do that, but that's where the impact takes place. So let me end with how. How, how do we elevate Jesus? Well, again, the easy answer is just like how we elevate God that we talked about. We recognize for him for who he is. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the only one to save us from our sins, the one who died in our place so that we would not have to pay for our sin. We recognize him for who he is. Therefore, we rank him number one. And then we represent him to the world. But Paul gives us some other insight in one other passage about how we can elevate Jesus. It's in Philippians 3.10 where Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. How we can elevate Jesus is number one, is to know Jesus. First in relationship, the power of his resurrection, realizing that he's the one and he's the only one that can give me life, that can give me new birth. And through his death, through his resurrection, through the power of resurrection, he's able to give me life and eternal life. So first, I know him in relationship. But then secondly, I know him in intimacy, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. What Paul's saying right there is, I wanna know Jesus the most intimate way possible. I want to know him in the depth, even in his suffering. I want to know him with that kind of intimacy. So we know him in relationship, then we know him in intimacy, and then third, we become like him. We set our heart and our mission and our passion to be like Christ, to be conformed into the image of Christ, that we love people the way Christ loves people that we honor God and obey our Father and are faithful to his calling the same way Jesus was, that we become more and more like Jesus. If we will seek to know him, if we will seek to be intimate with him, and the passion of our life is to be more and more intimate with him, he becomes number one in our life, and we are becoming like him, and we will take him and represent him into the world, I can promise you he will be elevated, and when he is elevated, he will draw people unto himself. So my prayer is that even though it's easier to elevate him here than it is out there,
May we be committed to be a people that are so in love with Christ, that are so committed to the calling, that we are so sure that Jesus is different, that we'll take him to the world, elevate him in the world, and see who God brings to himself. May we elevate him this week. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. To learn more about River Fellowship in Amarillo, Texas, or to hear more messages, go to rfamarillo.org. Thanks. Have a great week.